So this is day three of the Rocky Mountain Bible School 2019, our second period of classes, uh, Brother Dev Ramshram from Toronto West. And uh, his overall theme is Abraham Believed God. And uh, today's topic, I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Brother Dev, please. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. I made the decision this morning I'm going to put my watch in front of me, which is almost indecipherable that way, um, and that I would uh, be able to keep time and arrived in the room five minutes late. <laughs> so things have not gone well. A little bit of, uh, of additional information that was supplied just in, in, in discussion yesterday, some great points by people, but one that stuck out that I wanted to share with you is this. Lot makes this progression from pitching his tent towards Sodom to dwelling in Sodom, <laughs> and eventually Lot is a city councillor in Sodom, sitting in the gate of the city. So what you have is a traveling, sojourning pilgrim who becomes a landed immigrant, or what you call a resident alien, a resident alien, and then he becomes a city councillor. And one of the reasons that was suggested was Perhaps the same kind of brokered arrangement that occurred between Abraham, Abram at the time, and those people around him from the Amalekites who became his, well, his allies in the war that occurred. They had a mutual self, uh, defense uh, uh, a, a treaty or arrangement with each other. Occurred likewise in Lot's case. Lot must have had quite a retinue of people. Remember, from the group of people that Abraham had, 318 were chosen, born in his house as servants with enough time to grow up to full adult, adulthood to become fighting men, trained fighting men. And there were so many of them in both uh, families and the extended retinues that the land could not support them. So it could have been a sizable group of people that Lot had with him. Lot his immediate family, and then an extended group of servants, which if we said conservatively was three or four hundred people, only three survived that ecclesia. Only three. Only. Abraham was thinking as he negotiated with the angel that represented Yahweh, well look, let's go with the ridiculous number. If there's 10, if there's 10, will, will you spare the city? And in all of his compassionate empathy, the angel says, yes, if there are 10, knowing full well there aren't even that many. There aren't even that many, all right? And so that descent into Sodom led to the loss of a generation. I want to tell you a little bit about my generation, just briefly. I am the end of the baby boom generation, a generation that experienced Decade by decade, exponential increases in prosperity as their parents and grandparents, after the Second World War, rebuilt and saw flourishing econo economies around the West. We were a generation that was used to getting new things all the time. There were so many kids born in that generation, they couldn't build the schools fast enough. You may recall that, those of you of that generation. You'd be bussed all over the place because the schools were full up. 
And people moved out and out, built the suburbs, built their homes with the picket fences, and the prosperity increased and increased and increased. To the point that the generation that was raised in that milieu of prosperity became used to it being the norm. They should always have what they want. They should always be able to get and acquire whatever they desire. Credit became so cheap that something our grandparents could never ever have imagined became reality for us. You didn't have to have money to get things. You just needed a credit card or you needed whatever kind of account you needed to have so that out of it, with no money, you could purchase things. Thereby putting the entire Western world economy based on that system, no longer built on gold, bullion, sitting in a room in a vault somewhere, but just based on printing more money, printing more money. We built a pack of cards of an economy and our lives likewise. For us as baby boom kids growing up, we, without ever wanting to, without realizing what we were doing, had the life of Lot, most of us. Now many didn't, and many of those are here, and many of those have their children in the truth. But for the rest of us, me included, we had one foot planted in the ecclesia, the other foot planted in the world, in its entertainment, in its luxuries, in its travel, in all the accoutrements that come with the prosperous life of that generation in this world. Many of us have been leveraged with debt up above our eyeballs. We can barely breathe, but you would never know it looking at us. Our parents know, you don't. That's our generation. What did our kids see? What did the children see? They saw mummies and daddies with one foot planted in Sodom. One foot planted in the Ecclesia. What do you reckon they were going to choose eventually? What was going to be the easier choice for them? And for most of us, we've experienced children who walked away from the truth into the world. Many of them irretrievable. So that when we go to our children and say, God is going to destroy this city, they look at us as if we're making a joke. We are like Lot, those of us that are like what I just described. So these are not stories about people walking around in robes speaking the poetry of the king's English in the period of Shakespeare and company. These are real life people making decisions that looked like they were common sense decisions at a moment in time but were entirely and completely spiritually the wrong things to do. And their children paid the price. And so Lot makes that progression. It's really a kind of a regression, isn't it? A retrogression. He goes deeper and deeper down. Now something that I, I can say with honesty is, the generation after us has it right in many, many ways. 
They've been raising their children much closer to their kids, much more absolutely involved in keeping them engaged with brothers and sisters, with their children, with activities around the ecclesia as much as possible. Whereas for us, there was that thing we thought was a kind of balance between the fun of this world, the life of this world, thinking we could survive it unscathed, and the life of the ecclesia, never fully addressing the disconnects and inconsistencies of that half-worldly, half-ecclesial, spiritual life. It's a struggle that we, many of us as boomers, will take to the day that we die or the day that the kingdom comes. But it is our struggle and we have to keep on struggling and just keep in the truth. No matter how small the remnants are, the vestiges of what is left of our families after all the mistakes that we've made. And so chapter 15 begins, or chapter 14, goes into that part of the narrative that talks about the end of the battle, everything being brought by Abram that was taken away from Sodom. And it says, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Wow. Man whose name means King of Righteousness, whose city's name is Peace, so he's the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace as a consequence. So, so what do we have all together? We have a King, we have Righteousness, we have a Peace, we have a Priest, we have El Elyon, the Most High God, the title seems to imply that God is a being amongst, around whom are other high beings, but he is the most high. And of course, God is with the angels. Now he's with the angels and the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is the most high God. In the story, we have bread, we have wine, we have a blessing, we have deliverance from enemies. So many echoes that remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ, the atonement that was achieved by his Father and by him. The faith in the middle of all of those elements of the gospel of how God has engineered and worked out salvation that he might save those of mankind willing to respond. Melchizedek brings forth bread and wine and so the commentaries say outside, well, it's, it's just a regular meal. There's nothing that associates this with, uh, with, with the bread and wine of Christ. Of course, that's, that's stupid exposition, isn't it? It's, that is precisely what this is. It is a pre-echo. It points forward. Paul, writing the Hebrews, talks about the fact that Melchizedek was made like unto Christ. Now, note... It doesn't say Christ was made like unto him. It says he was made like unto Christ in his priesthood. His priesthood. And so, so this man, without father, without mother, etc. In other words, God is the parent of the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately. This individual comes and 
he blesses him. He blesses him. The greater blesses the lesser. Now, Abram had just beaten a bunch of incredibly powerful kings. Like Gideon, he had come rolling by nighttime with his two little teams and conquered and delivered his brother and all of the people that were with him. And he has all this power. But he submits and humbles himself before Melchizedek. And the point that the writer in the Hebrews makes is, Melchizedek as a priest was superior and prior to the Levitical priesthood. He was outside of the law and above the law. The Levites were in the loins of Abram, generations yet to come. And they, with Abram, bowed down to and humbled themselves before Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, who is analogous to Christ outside of the law and superior to the Levitical priesthood and all of the rituals and all the details that are associated with their work. He is above all of that, as was Melchizedek. And Abraham, your forefather, acknowledged that when he submitted to be blessed by the one greater than him, Melchizedek. And so it goes on and it says, he blessed him. And he says, blessed be Abram of the most high God and of really is by, by the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be the most high God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And so Melchizedek articulates the right balance. No, it's not that you were a superior general who were able as a guerrilla warrior to outfox superior forces using your mind. God delivered you. God delivered them into your hands. God made you victorious. It was God who had the victory. And it says, he gave him a tenth of all, tithes of all. Now, Brother John Carter in his commentary on Hebrews writes the following words. Abram's oath, this is the oath that he's about to make. In the presence of Melchizedek, this is what it's about. It is clear from Abraham's words that in the worship of God in company with Melchizedek, Abraham had made a solemn dedication of service to God. Some intimate words had passed between priest and worshiper and some great resolve registered. The meeting had set Abraham's course and given him the moral earnestness to follow it through. It meant refusing the overtures of the king of Sodom and offering a repulse to him that could make him an embittered enemy. When Abraham rejects Sodom's offer of goods, effectively, he's put himself in this world in an 
absolutely tenuous position. But he did it. He nailed his spiritual colors to the mast. And so it says, the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the people and take the goods to yourself. Because that's what the custom was. That is what was done. And think of what that meant. All the money, all the gold, all the silver, all the jewelry associated with the people that had come back. Whatever they had taken in the way of flocks, herds, all of that, was, which was vast wealth, would have been Abraham's. Think of the material security in this world that that would have given him in the world. What, what, would, what would Lot have done with that decision? Abram makes a different decision. And this is what Abram says. I have lifted up my hand unto Yahweh El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And so, so he makes this decision to the wicked, foul, disgusting king of Sodom. He makes this decision all about his God. And by doing that, he's not just insulting the king by saying no to his offer of money. He's saying to the king, your gods are nothing. I have made a vow to the one existing God who is the possessor of everything. So now, now what he has done is an egregious insult to a pagan king telling him your religion is all rubbish. Everything you believe is nothing. My God is everything. And I have promised him I will not take a thing from you. Not one thing. He goes on and he says that I will not take from a thread even a shoe latchet that I will not take anything that is yours. So what he's just said to the king of Sodom, remember, you are the proud, horrendous king of Sodom. And this foreigner looks at you and says, I want nothing of you at all. Not even a piece of string. I want nothing to do with you. Well, what would you think? How safe would that be, man, that man? And after you were over the shock, because nobody had ever talked to you like that in your life, not once, not even once, what would you be thinking to do to that man after? But Abraham says what he says. And Abram then, it says, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Because that's how vast the wealth was. Sodom could have said that. I made him rich. We made him rich. 
save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. Anner, whose main name means boy, Eshkol, you'll remember Levi Eshkol, whose name means cluster, and Mamre, whose name means strength. Let them take their portion. And then, then there's that moment of quiet. And Abraham has some separation between the event and where he is at the beginning of Genesis 15. Enough time for him to become anxious. Enough time for him to realize the potential implications of what he said to the king of Sodom. The level of safety and security that he has. Enough time to reflect on, if I had only taken that money, think of what I could do with it. And God says unto him in a vision, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And he's echoing in a way the, the sentiment of what Melchizedek had said when he said to him, Blessed be God who has given you the victory, who put your enemies in your power, who delivered them into your hands. God is underscoring that and saying, look, I am your shield. Don't be afraid. Why would he say don't be afraid? Because he was afraid. Abram, the man of faith, was afraid. Men and women of faith have times when they are afraid. It doesn't mean you're not a believer or a brother or sister in Christ of substance. It just means you're human. And he was afraid. So God reassures him and says, look, I am your shield. And then he goes on and he says, and you know all that money you walked away from? I am your exceeding great reward. And what does that word reward mean? Well, the word reward means payment of contract. It can mean salary. It can mean compensation, benefit, hire, Reward. The word is used in different places. In chapter 31 and verse 18, Jacob is told, the ring straight shall be thy hire. And the word hire is reward. In Numbers 18 and verse 31, and ye shall eat it every place, in every place, ye and your households, for it is your reward for your service in the tabernacle of the congregation. And so the reward, the eating of the sacrificial offerings, well, that was the reward of the men who had that benefit. Same word. And the word is also used in Zechariah in that terrible passage where it says, so they weighed for my price. The word price 30 pieces of silver. And Psalm 127 and verse 3 talks about the fruit of the womb is his reward. And so what God is saying to him is everything you lost, everything you walked away from in this world so that you could be faithful to me, I will compensate you for. 
I'll compensate you for. And Abraham said, Abram said, Behold, to me you've given no seed, and somebody born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, No, I want you to look at the sky. So it's night time. Tell the stars. That doesn't mean speak to them. It means count them. You know, bank teller. Tell the stars is to count the stars. Count them. And of course, it's, it's not possible to do that. Even scientists today with the biggest telescopes can only mathematically infer how many stars there might be out there. And they still don't know. You can't count them. So shall your seed be. Now, this is the measure of the man. This is the measure of us as believers. No matter what our eyes tell us, remember Lot, through the veil that obscured his vision, Lot, meaning veil, saw the land and it looked lovely to his naked human eyes. But with the eyes of faith, Abram, here's what he just said, now he doesn't laugh cynically. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now it wasn't, it wasn't some kind of a quid pro quo. You believe in me and then I'll give you X amount of righteousness. Brother Jim has been at pains to show us that there isn't that kind of accounting that God is doing. There isn't a balance sheet that he works with like that. It's about faith. Abram believed him. And God looked at him and made the choice to see him as righteous. He accounted that to him as righteousness. The word counted, the Hebrew word chasab means to think, to regard, to compute. The Greek equivalent is logizomai, and it means to reckon, to count, to compute, to calculate. So yes, all of those words sound like accounting, but ultimately what happens is this. God sees you, his child, trusting and believing in him. No matter how desperate, no matter how tenuous your circumstances may be, he loves you for it and he sees you as righteous for your faith and for the sake of his son to whom you have connected yourself through baptism into his act of faith, his crucifixion, his death. And then, through the process, obtaining the hope of the resurrection, which was the, the result, the consequence of his perfect obedience in faith. Abram believed God, and he counted it to him for faith. Now this is the man of tremendous faith, showing his faith, but still having a margin of needing to be shown and encouraged to believe with something more. And so he says, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Well, it just said he believed him. But it's just like Gideon with the fleece. Just, just, just give me something to hold on to. And God does not say to him, listen, 
I just told you, didn't I? Didn't I help you in that battle that just occurred? Haven't I led you all this way? He doesn't do any of that. God's not like us. He doesn't rail, we're told. The angels do not rail. Instead, he meets them where he is. And he puts things in terms of what people did then. Now, when people were going to have a very serious binding agreement where they were willing to stake their lives on the agreement, what would happen is they would sacrifice animals. They would take animals, they would divide them down the middle. Now, you might take a calf, for instance, and you would literally split that animal from the nose all the way down to the tail area for a precise division into two pieces, meaning both sides have an equal stake in this promise. Then the, then the halves of the animals would be organized on both sides. The animals would be, the fires would be lit. And the people, the men, would come from either side of the dividing open area between the animals that had been split and would meet in the middle. They would then, after they had made their promise, their covenant, eat of the offerings together. That was serious business, very serious. And what they were saying effectively is, if I break this agreement, and you could just, with the ellipsis, dot, 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 work out the consequence. And so what does God do? Knowing that's what happens culturally, knowing that is what happens in the society in which they live, and knowing also the pre-echo to the Lord Jesus Christ, what he would do, his accomplishment, and what that would entail. It says, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon, and he took out to him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against the other. But the birds divided he not. They were too small. And when the fowls and, and sorry, and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, No, of a surety, thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. But also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. So imagine the one man coming from the one end of those arranged sacrifices so that he could make his commitment to that promise.
promise, that covenant. And who's the one man? The same thing that they saw in the wilderness. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. That fiery thing that was upon Mount Sinai. That incredible glow and fire associated with God. And here he is. Here, here's the angel manifested in this, 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 this torch, this flame coming through, demonstrating God's commitment to the covenant. But, but Abraham, Abraham doesn't get to do that yet. He does that effectively, symbolically, in chapter 17. When God will say to him, as for your part, this is what you will do. And that effectively is, is, is Abram walking from his side through the sacrificial offerings and agreeing with Yahweh so that they both are together in this agreement. Now, it says that for a period of time, Abram drove away the birds you remember that wonderful session we had last night on the eagles? You will not soon forget that, will you? And that image of the end, that dramatic image of the double-headed eagle. Not easily forgotten. The eagles. Where the carcasses, there will the eagles be gathered. Matthew would write. God through Matthew. Harry Whitaker says the following words. The exposure of the carcasses attracted the attention of hungry birds of prey. But Abraham kept watch and repeatedly drove them off. Suggestion has been made. Here was symbolized the frequent ignorant attempts that have been made over the centuries by Gentile nations to thwart God's purpose with Israel during the long period that that nation has been like a slaughtered carcass in a figure Abraham has continued to keep watch over his own. Israel continues to be a nation beloved for the Father's sake. The symbolism, the symbolism of Daniel 4 verse 12, where again the birds of heaven symbolize the polyglot, that's multilingual, multilanguaged nations of the world, appears to support this interpretation. And then he, he points uh, to some other cross-references we can look at. And of course, there's Matthew 24, verse 28. Uh, there's also Habakkuk 1, verses 6 to 8, which Brother Roger showed us last night, and also Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. And so, Abraham driving away the birds is like the effect of the promises as a protective canopy to some degree through the ages over the Jewish people. Horror of great darkness. If you, if you are a Jew today, you might look at that and see something which interpretatively reminds you of the Holocaust, which was a horror of great darkness. And then the torch and the furnace would have different echoes for you. But for us as, as Bible students, Christadelphians in a room together, this horror 
of great darkness. Well, it could be typical of the darkness which, which, which is descended over the land on the day of the crucifixion as Christ was dying on the cross. David uses the same word translated horror in Psalm 55 at verse 4 where he says, the terrors of death are fallen on me. The horror of great darkness. Of course, it, it can also refer to the fact that the falling asleep, the darkness is going to entail death. And a resurrection to life for Abram and all those that are his. You, you see how God in his loving kindness and compassion meets Abram where he is with ideas and concepts that he can understand as a man living in his world at a particular point in time. God doesn't say to him, well, just believe me because I said so. He could have said that. And there would have been times for that to be absolutely appropriate in, in Jewish history. But in this instance, the gentleness, the compassion, the empathy he demonstrates to the, to the one who is his friend, who, who is all of us, all of us, because it wasn't just the Levites that were in his loins. We were in his spiritual loins, as it were. All the seed, the adopted seed, the grafted in branch. God has that same loving care and concern for us, wherever we are and whoever we might be. Well, we move on then, and it says, verse 18, The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, from the river of Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates, that massive piece of land. I'm going to give it to you and to your seed, and to your seed. And so there's, there's, there's a sense of the scale of what is being given by God to Abraham. Now we're going to skip chapter 16 because we'll look at that when we get back together tomorrow and deal with the situation of Abimelech. But just a very, very, very quick and cursory glance at Genesis 17. We're going to do five minutes worth of that. When Abram was 90 years old and nine, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El God, strength, might, might, right? Elohim, mighty ones, right? Eloah, mighty one, El, strength. Shaddai. The word Shaddai is founded on, well, two potential words. One that means breast, and Shaddai means breasts. One that means power, destructive force, might. And of course, both of them are appropriate for Yahweh. Both. And both are engaged in the loving protection of Abraham and his seed. The nurturing, loving, motherliness of God. Well, where does the motherly instinct of women come from? From God. From God. Because God created both male and female 
All the attributes that we have, anything that is worthwhile in us, comes from Him. So we shouldn't be at all troubled to hear God referring to Himself with a title that is talking about what we would associate with our moms and us as babies. I am El Shaddai, he says. He says to him, walk before me and be thou perfect. Jim Cowie suggests that walk before me could be translated literally, walk as though you are in my presence. As though you're in my presence. Noah walked with God. Walk with me. And be thou perfect. Now we look at that word and we get frightened because we know what we are made of and we already think, oh, well that's it, story's over for me. But, but the word perfect does not mean sinless. That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about sinlessness. That's not what it means. That word perfect has to do with blamelessness. Don't be an individual who lives in the world like a sodomite, like somebody who is from Gomorrah. Live in the world like someone who has faith in me. You know, you go to Bible schools and they have a multitude of uh, rules and regulations. This one wisely makes it harder. It's like law and grace. Law is ritual, 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 details, right? Because then you know exactly what you have to do. And then you work out all the bypasses and process overflows and inflows and, and how to get around the rules. The more you have, the better you get at bypassing them. But when the rules are, do what you ought to do, you are in a vice. Because now you know, well, I have to act like a grown-up. Right? I have to behave in, a, in an orderly and responsible fashion. That's what this is like. Walk before me and be an accountable, responsible, mature, faithful believer. And so he says, I will make a covenant with you. Well, didn't he just make a covenant? Well, what do you mean? I will make a covenant with you as if one is already not made. It must mean I will now implement the covenant. Uh, taking it to that stage where now it's, it's moving forward. Now, it, it, it has been 13 years since God last spoke to him. Or at least 13 years since Ishmael's been around. It's a very long time, isn't it? 13 years. Now, for you to be a man of faith, continuing without that connection of the voice of God for 13 years is, is, is a measure of the faith of Abram. And he talks about multiplying his seed exceedingly. He says in verse 4, as for me. And these are the things that he's going to be doing. I'm going to make you a multitudinous seed. You are going to be a father of not just one nation that is multitudinous in itself, but a multitude of nations. So you're going to be a father of Gentiles, not just your own descendants. Everybody is going to be your children who are tied to your seed. And we'll stop there, pick it up briefly tomorrow, and continue forward.